You're about to listen to a message from Every Nation Church Midrand, the place where people come to be changed and discipled to transform society. Now, we're going to dive into the text. So what we're going to do today is, is look at this first, uh, first few verses, first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospels, there are four of them, and Mark is the most action-packed. I mean, you'd think Jesus were running everywhere if you just uh, only read Mark, because Mark uses the word, and immediately, and immediately, and then quickly, and then so you're just like, oh my gosh, Jesus' ministry lasted like 19 minutes, and he did so much. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually only from the Gospel of John that we know that it was three years long. If Mark was all we had, we might assume it was very brief, um, because Mark, Mark is written in that a very fast pace. I'm here to do a mission. I'm here to get it done. And, and so we're going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to work in the text as we see how the, the, the seeing of, the sight, and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape us for whom Jesus is king, okay? The sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape us the people of Jesus the King. So uh, let's read in the text, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And then passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to me, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Two very common verses, very common passages of the scriptures that I hope today we're going to see more in and through them to see the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, for our time together, thank you, God, for these men and women that you've gathered. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in this house. I can feel it. I can feel that I'm in the midst of a miracle, and I can feel that this is just the beginning. So, Father, I pray that what I say today would deposit something useful into the, into the structure of this spiritual house. Father, I pray for my friends in the room today that you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, move us. Show us, God, the kingdom. Show us. Help us to see it and see the scope of it and to be shaped by a vision of the kingdom of God as we follow Jesus, the king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So um, I live in the United States, and you may have noticed uh, we're in the midst of a political season. Uh, this is the weirdest time I can ever remember in my country because we are about to either elect a criminal or a crazy person, and I'll let you decide which is which, okay? And, um, and that's very, it's very unusual. And, uh, and, and what that's fomented in my nation is this deep and fierce political divide, even in the church. I, it, my church is quite diverse, okay? Aletheia, we planted, uh, Aletheia, Aletheia is the Greek word for truth, and I'm odd, and so I named my church a Greek word. Don't judge me. Um, but... We, we planted our church. It's right in between Harvard and MIT, okay? So I have, I have smart people, and I use these because they're not really, but they think they are. Um, uh, uh, they just know how to explain their problems away and with more fluid language, um, but they're just as broken as everybody else. Um, and, but, but in my line, we're, we're serving communion, and in my communion line, as I'm serving communion, I, I 
someone with a, a black, someone who works with Black Lives Matter on the campus. And then behind her, a few steps, is a gentleman with a Donald Trump hat on. This is my church. And I went, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> right? We, we tend to divide ourselves, and, and you do it in this country, we do it in every country, uh, in every heated political season between, you know, the conservatives and the progressives or the liberals, and we fight. And we even do this in the church. Malcolm uh, Muggeridge, I believe, said, or I'm sorry, G.K. Chesterton said this, the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. And the business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from ever being made or corrected. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he's kind of picking at both here. And, and yet in the church, these are not decisions that we have to make. See, in the church, we, we, we tend to, we get into um, this spirit of partiality pretty quickly, right? And we'll pick our heroes and, and then we'll gather around our heroes. We can do it politically. We can do it with a sporting team. We can do it with our favorite preacher. It happened in the book of Corinthians, right? Some said, well, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm of Apollos. And then the really super spiritual people were like, well, we're of Jesus. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and what I, what I want you and I to understand this morning is that for the people of God, we do not have to decide whether we're going to be part of the kingdom of this political party or that political party, the kingdom of this particular pastor or that particular pastor. We don't have to decide if we're going to be a part of this kingdom or that kingdom. We are a part of the kingdom of God. But if we do not see it and see the scope of it, we won't be shaped by it. And when it comes, we may find ourselves very surprised that we were neither prepared for it and at worst, not included in it because we worship the king of a very different kingdom because our hearts were shaped by the longing for a very different kingdom. And so this is important, church, that the sight of and the scope, the hugeness of the kingdom of God must shape us if we say Jesus is king. They must shape us. In a book uh, on this topic, um, one of my favorite authors wrote this, we should be the last people on earth to skulk back in fear or apathy. You know, they say in, in my nation right now, oh, the, you know, the, our nation's going to, going to hell in a handbasket, Pastor. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's bad times, the worst it's ever been. Uh, you know, what, what are we going to do? And my response is, you know, I don't think it's harder than it was in Athens or in Rome in the second century when Nero lit Christians on fire for streetlights. It's probably not any harder than that. And you know what? The church did great. We were fine. So this author writes this, we should be the last people on earth to skulk back in fear or apathy. And we ought to be the last people on earth to uncritically praise any leader or movement as if they were the kingdom leader we were waiting for. We need leaders and allies, but we do not need a Messiah. That job is filled, and he's feeling just fine. <laughs> Isn't that great? So... I want to show you this morning how the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape those for us uh, who say Jesus is king. Now, that's a big sentence, and I have it up here so that you can get your head around it, because, because the kingdom is big. The, the kingdom is huge. And what we are very often guilty of doing, my fellow believers in Jesus, is we get saved. We embrace the whole, you know, Jesus called his disciples, said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we're like, yeah, I want to follow you. But we forget the first part of that verse, the first part. Now, you've got to know in your Bible, the headers are not inspired, 
okay? The headers are not there in ancient Greek. The, the headers were inserted later uh, by, by Bible editors. But when you read it without the, header, without the headers, 14 and 15 flow right into 16. So Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the very next thing he does is goes and finds some people, some disciples. But what do you think he taught them? The gospel of the kingdom. He didn't go out here and proclaim this kingdom message and then take his disciples and say, now this is how you have a really long prayer meeting. Um, now, here's how to make all of your non-Christian friends feel weird around you. Um, sometimes we do this, church, let's be honest, right? No, he, he took the gospel, and that's what he trained them with. The gospel, not just of how to get saved, but the good news of the coming kingdom of God. In all of its scope and breadth and hugeness, which is probably why it took three years. It took a while. But the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape those of us who say Jesus is king. And so let's, let's break that sentence down, the sight and scope of it. You see, we misunderstand the kingdom of God because we don't see it very often times. Um, imagine, and, and let, me, let me use Okay. Uh, any of you art fans in here? Uh, in, in Boston, we have this massive museum of art, and we have some famous paintings, you know, some Monets. The Monets are my favorite. So imagine that I, I brought with me from Boston a stolen painting, because uh, they wouldn't let me borrow it. Um, and I put it up here, you know, this beautiful Monet, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, outside of its frame. And I said, you know, this is a beautiful painting, but you know what it needs? It needs a frame. So I'm just going to tear off maybe half of it, I'll paper mache it into a frame. What would I have done to the painting? We, I would have ruined it, right? When we don't see the kingdom of God shaping everything, what we do is we take a part of God's world and we try to rip it out and make that thing the thing that frames everything. And we're super guilty of doing this even in the church. In, in my nation, we, we, talk, we talked for a long time, uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago, about the big deal being family values. And so we, we extracted family values out of the gospel, and we made family values the thing, right? And so what did we do? We took a piece of God's world and tried to make it the thing that made sense out of everything. But here's the thing. If you try to cannibalize creation to explain creation... You destroy creation, and you don't understand creation, okay? If, if I take any of God's good gifts, like when God made the world, right? He called it good. Seven times in the first chapter of your Bible, he called it good. So was it good? Yes. When God repeats himself, that's, that's, that's God saying, yo, pay attention, okay? Like it was very good. And then at the very end, he said it was very good. So in the world, the body is good. God makes marriage and it's good. God makes work and it's good. Some of you, some of you young lazy people need to hear that. The work is good. Uh, in my church, I have a lot of young people who want to, you know, live in their mother's basement until they're like 82. Um, and to tell them work, work is good. Um, go, go to work. Uh, work is good, right? All these things are good. But if you make any one of those good things the thing, you destroy it because it can't bear the weight of explaining everything. Here's another example. Your, your marriage. Your marriage. If you take, if you come to church this morning because what you want is like a nice Christian family 
And so I come here, you know, to hear Pastor Eric explain to me how to be a great husband because what I'm really here for is to be the best, is to have the best marriage ever. What you're going to do is you're now laying upon your spouse the burden of the reason for your existence. You will break her because she is not there to explain your life. She's not there. If you ever tell someone, if you ever look in her eyes and say, baby, baby, what, you're the reason I'm alive. You might, you might think you're being romantic. And she might, she might be, she might buy it. She might go, oh, stop. You know, you know. But here's the, here's the thing. You have become an idolater because you've made her bear the burden of the reason for your existence. You've taken part of creation, you've cut the painting in half, and you've made her the frame of your life. Now, some of you, you're listening to me say that, and you're like, I would never do that. Okay, well, let me talk to you about your children. Let's, have, you, have you ever looked at your children and thought, I love them the most. I'm here. I give my life all the way. This is huge in the United States. We have helicopter parenting. Have you heard of this? I mean, parents who, like my mom, when she dropped me off at the playground, she dropped me off. But now moms are like, you know, just, you know, like, oh, don't fall. You know, oh, don't eat that. You know, don't, don't breathe that. And you're just like, gee whiz. You got to tone it down, mom. Go sit down, right? moms and dads, we sometimes make our children the reason for our existence. Well, what will we do? We'll create children that hate us and hate God because we have made them the reason for our existence. That's, that's idolatry. It's tearing a part of the painting. For some of you, it's business success. You are here. Your, your mission is to come to church to be blessed. Hallelujah. Mm. I'm going to be, mm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sow my seed, brother, and I'm going to get, I'm going to receive. And, and you're here not because, because God has rescued you from sin, not because Jesus is Lord, not because he's better than money, than power, than sex, than all of the, because, no, 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 no. You're here because you have made money the reason you exist. And so you treat God like you would treat any tribal deity. You come and you give him a little worship and you tip him so that you can manipulate him to give you what you really want, which is money. That's no different than burning a little incense. That's no different than doing a little sacrifice. It's the same. We treat God like an idol because we don't want God. We want his stuff. Men and women of God, unless we see the scope of the kingdom of God, we won't be shaped by Jesus the King. And so what that happens, so I, this, we, this is, and I, I feel as an American, I must apologize to you, because we invented the prosperity gospel. And look, I believe God loves to bless his kids. God's the most generous being. He owns all the money. But your material blessing is not always only ever what God wants to do. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, that psalm we all love, that it, it's all the path of the righteousness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll me, he leads me besides green pastures, still waters, he restores my soul. And then 
Oh, sometimes I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But your rod and staff, they comfort me. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a journey. Like if you were to take that psalm out and map it, that's a journey. That's called life, right? He's with me. He never leaves me. But sometimes he walks me through hard stuff because he's not interested only in making my wallet fat or making my house nice or my car good or my health nice. He's interested in shaping me for the next 10 trillion years with him in his kingdom forever. That may mean I need to die to some of my sin. That may mean I need to learn how to love Jesus more than I love money or love my body or love my wife or love my babies. And I love those things. But the gospel of the kingdom of God is not the story of God coming to just make everybody wealthy. The gospel of the kingdom, if you heard this in first century Jerusalem, with the ears, if you'd been steeped in what's called Second Temple Judaism, okay, if you were a Jewish person, man or woman, and all you knew for the last 500 years was empire after empire after empire after empire coming and running Jerusalem and ruining the place where God was supposed to be known and worshipped, and you, all you ever read was Isaiah, and if you read Isaiah, it's all about this mysterious coming king who's going to restore the kingdom, but who's also going to serve it, but who's also going to be victorious, but who's also going to die. It's just this very mysterious book. And then you meet Jesus. You go, you're the king. You're the, you're the guy. All of these books that we've been reading for the last 700 years, you, you're the king. No one would have mistaken Jesus for the handout guy. No one would have mistaken Jesus for their celestial Santa Claus you know, that, that I pray my little wish list to, and he says, well, as long as you sing for 30 minutes once a week, I will give you money. That's ridiculous. And when we, so listen, the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape us if we say Jesus is king. The whole thing has to shape us. And so what we do is we settle for false kingdoms. If we don't see it and we're not shaped by it, we settle for false kingdoms. Some, in, in, it'll be political It'll be familial. It'll be church-sounding things. This is the worst. We settle for, like, doing things with or for God that sound Christian but aren't. And, I mean, Jesus talks about this. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Come on, prophecy. That's not like an entry-level spiritual gift. That's not, that's, that's like a big thing, right? And did we not do many mighty wonders? And he'll say what? Who are you? Why? Because Jesus is, is interested in shaping us and forming us for his kingdom. But that'll only happen when we see it. When we see it. Not when we lay our eyes on just what we want from the king. Not when we lay our eyes on his treasury or his what power or his whatever. The scripture says, if you seek the kingdom, he'll give you all those things. Look, in the next 10 billion years, you will walk on gold streets. And it will be nothing to you. Why? You, you wouldn't give your life for a bucket of asphalt now, would you? A bucket of gravel now. Okay, well, that's asphalt in the kingdom. Why would we give our lives for it? The sight and scope of the kingdom of God must shape everything about the world. 
that we see. And, and so what does that mean? Well, the kingdom of God, the, the gospel of the kingdom is this story, right? It's the story that has to inform everything that we do. It's the story of, of God making the world, and it was really good. And heaven and earth were together, right? God was walking in the garden with the cool of the day, just chilling with Adam. I don't even know what that means, but I want it, right? God's just walking around, taking a walk. But then our first parents rebelled, okay? They were, they were tricked by God's enemy and said, listen, God's holding out on you. He's not really good. You can't really trust him. But if you do this one thing, you'll become like him in all the wrong ways. And so our first parents said, you know what? I'm going to do that. And in so doing, they turned their back on God and their face to God's enemy. They thought they would be the kings of the world, and they ended up becoming enslaved to God's enemy, the false king of this world. They were made to rule the world. Men and women of God, you were made to rule the world. The scriptures say in Genesis 1.28, this dominion some of you may be familiar with, that we were designed to rule the world with God. That's what he made us for. And we became, instead of the kings and queens of, with God that we were designed to be, we became treasonous. And we gave away our royal place to become literal slaves of a false king. And God looked at them. In Genesis 3, God looked at them and said, it will not always be so. But at that moment, when sin came into the world, heaven and earth were ripped apart, right? The place, the space where God lives and the space where we live became two different spaces. They used to be the same. But when sin entered the world, they were cleaved apart. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we get these stories of like heaven touching earth a little bit, right? God would come and speak to Noah, or God would come and speak to Abraham, and God would set up the tabernacle, and there was a space where they touched, but there was always this longing in the heart of like, when is God going to be with his people? And so then we get the book of Isaiah, and we, hear, we see this word, God is going to come, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You mean they're going to come together? You mean the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is going to, they're going to crash into one another. And then there was about four centuries of silence. After the end of the Old Testament prophetic witness, there was just nothing. Have you ever watched one of those television shows that left you on a cliffhanger and then that was the end of the season and you're like, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> I must know now what happens. Okay. My wife and I, uh, did, uh, did you get Downton Abbey down here? We were really addicted. I am ashamed. I should probably repent. This is public repentance. We were addicted to Downton Abbey. Um, and the end of one of those seasons, we just, it was a terrible summer, all summer long. <laughs> That's not true. But, and then Jesus comes. And he unites heaven and earth in the craziest way by embodying both of them. But when he embodies both of them, and then he dies for us. He doesn't just pay for our sins, though he does that. And he rises and he says, if you trust in me, you will rise with me too. You will be the kind of people who live out the collision of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this earth. And in the future, your future is not that you will die and float up to heaven to be with God forever. Did you know that that's not eternity for you? The future is a resurrected future. When God comes in the form of his son down from the clouds, and when you read Revelation, it's not the story of heaven being destroyed and people floating up. It's the story of heaven coming down. And behold, I saw a city coming down from the clouds. Heaven, the city of our God. 
And it was gigantic. And it came and it sat upon the earth so that at the end of the story, the, the Bible's this wonderful story and it's really symmetrical. So that at the very end, the place where God dwells and the place where we dwell become the same place again. Men and women of God, if you don't know that, if you don't know that story, if you don't see the world shaped by that story, then you will think, oh, well, I'm just going to maybe float up to heaven when I die, so what I do with my body doesn't matter. So how I treat people in this world doesn't matter. You know, how I treat, uh, you know, there's a reason we say we're here to plant a Christ-centered, uh, spirit-empowered, socially responsible campus ministries and churches. Do you know why? Because this world matters. We are not loading guns, saving canned goods, and holding on for the rapture, Okay. That's not it. That's a weird, bad idea that also I'm pretty sure we invented in my country. Sorry about that. Um, we've invented a few bad ideas. But, but we've got to see the scope of the kingdom of God so that we can be shaped by Jesus the king, yeah? And if we don't, we'll settle for kingdom imposters. N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite theologians, said this. As I see it, the prayer that Jesus said, thy kingdom come, was answered powerfully at the first Easter and will be answered fully when heaven and earth are joined in the new Jerusalem. Easter was when hope became a man and surprised the whole world by coming into it from the future. The ultimate future hope remains a surprise because we don't know exactly when it will arrive and we're sure that it will be better than what we imagine. But we generally tend to think that we believe things are getting worse and there's nothing we can do about it. And we are wrong. Our task is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, both in worship and mission, as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. The sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape those of us for whom Jesus is king. So what does it mean for us to be shaped by it? Okay, so we've got to see it. We've got to see it. And you've got to see the whole story. That's why we love the scriptures. That's why we preach the Bible. And, and, and it's why we submit, you know, what the Spirit says to us, to what the Bible says to all of us, right? The Lord told you is no, no substitution for the Bible says, just so you know. I've heard the Lord tell a lot of people a lot of really silly things um, that I'm like, well, I know the Holy Spirit, you know, you say he's speaking to you, but did you know he wrote a book um, <laughs> right here? And uh, no, he didn't tell you that. <laughs> so... Maybe I should just stop there and have an altar call. Are you okay? <laughs> Get the piano player back up here for that one. All right. So we've got to be shaped by it. Well, here's the thing. You are not neutral. You're going to be shaped by some story. There's, going to, there's some story that you're going to live out regardless of if, whether you try or not. Okay? So if you're not going to be shaped by the story of the gospel and the vision of the kingdom of God, you're going to be shaped by something else. It's going to be, you know, the story of, I'm going to show my parents, They're, you know, I'll, I'll never be like them, or the story of your own brokenness or bitterness. Maybe the story of, you know, this political utopia you're living for that'll never come. Maybe, maybe the story of you when you're finally a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever, or the story of you when you get that six-pack, right? Um, You're going to live out some story. So my question for you is, live, why, why would you not live out the story of the kingdom? Well, it can only be either because you are in sin and disobedient or because you just haven't seen it fully yet. We study the scriptures so that we can become ambassadors of a future kingdom. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Well, ambassadors don't get to do whatever they want. They, they perfectly represent the will of the sovereign who sent them, right? If, if Barack Obama calls me today and he says, Adam, um, you know, I need you to be our ambassador to South Africa. And I'll say, well, that's convenient. I'm already here. Um, <laughs> I, don't get to, I don't get to move into the embassy and then go, right, guys, um, I know President Obama says this, but really, it's all about me. And so lower that American flag, put my face up there, um, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about how, how my president has put me here so that I can have my blessed life now. And uh, I can get all I want. And mm -mm, I'd be fired and probably thrown in jail. Um, and, and as I should be. Well, when we're called ambassadors, men and women of God, you are telling the story of some kingdom. My simple question to you is, if we looked at your life, if we interviewed your 10 closest coworkers and friends, what story would they say you tell? Not just with words. I mean, please use your words, yes. But with your life, with the way you manage your money, with the way you treat the people above you and below you and beside you, with the way you, with the way you pursue your goals, what story do you tell? Because the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape those of us for whom Jesus is king. Otherwise, we will tell the story of this cannibalized world creating a frame out of, you know, it's really all about money. It's really all about this. It's really all about that. Now, I'm going to shape those of us for whom Jesus is king. That sort of presumes that Jesus is king for you. Now, I know that many of us believe that Jesus is savior, but who wouldn't want that? Right? If, if, if I told you, hey, Jesus loves you and wants to save you with no cost now, call, call now and we'll throw in a, a free Bible, right? Uh, who, who among us would be like, nah? <laughs> but here's the thing. Jesus didn't just show up to say, hi, I'm the Savior. He showed up to be Messiah. And, and the word Mashiach, the word Christ, they're the same word, just in two different languages. Do you know what that word translates to? King. King. He's king. See, there, there's, you don't get to accept Jesus as your savior. My nice, and my, you know, we, we say it a lot. We accept Jesus as your personal savior. Like, oh, my personal one. Like my pocket-sized Jesus. I'm just going to, I'm going to put a fish on the back of my car, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have one of those Christian armbands, and I'm going to listen to totally different music, and now he's my personal Lord and Savior. It just makes me feel good. No, he, said, he wants to do that. I don't want to denude that. That's important. But he's the king who's your savior. He's the one with all authority who laid it all down. He's the one with all the power who became the powerless. He's the one with, for whom the entire creation was made who decided to come and seek you and me. He is our Savior, King. And so the sight and the scope of His kingdom must shape those of us for whom Jesus is King. But if for you this morning Jesus is not your King, then the Scriptures say in John 3, you can't even see the kingdom. There was a man who came to Jesus and said, and he, by night, right, Nicodemus, because he didn't want to, you know, be seen by his friends talking to Jesus. So he was like, Jesus, right? He's like, hey, hey, look, we all know you're a teacher, you come from God, but because no one could do the works that you do, but like, brother, what are you talking about? Like, you're, you're making everybody mad. And Jesus is like, you're the teacher, and you don't know who I am. Face palm, right? <laughs> and 
I read Jesus with a lot more sarcasm than maybe is there in the original text. Um, it could be because I live in a big American city. I don't know. Um, and he says, well, listen, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. Wow. So the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God has to shape those of us for whom Jesus is king. But if this morning you're really into kingdom gifts, but you're not into Jesus being your king, then you can't even see. You can't even see the crumb off the table of all that God's kingdom will in fact be. And it comes as we personally and as we corporately, church, make Jesus king of literally everything that we do. Because what, if we see this, if we really live this way, if the sight and the hugeness of the kingdom of God is what shapes this house, then when people walk in your doors, they won't say, oh, every nation Midran, that's a nice place. Oh, they're very friendly there. They'll say, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like I walked into heaven for a minute. I, I feel like I've been around people who've been around God. Because out here, racism, classism, poverty, like all those things are rife. But in here, they love one another, they take care of each other's needs, but no one is like a really big deal. And even, even the greatest among them serve the least among them. And, and they're, really, they're, they're, not about, they're not about making their names great, but rather making disciples of this other name, Jesus. And they'll feel like they have been in an outpost of heaven on earth. See, the whole story of the kingdom is the story, again, of the space where God dwelled and the space where man dwelt being the same, but sin cleaving them apart. And all throughout the, the st story of the Bible, they touch, but in Jesus, they're united, which is a foretaste of what the future kingdom will be like. And so when we, when we become Christians, he unites himself to us, and we become the space where heaven and earth are united, and we get to be little invaders of this new kingdom when we go to work, when we go to school, when we go into our families, when we're talking to our spouse, or when we're praying for one, we get to live out this new kingdom reality because the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God are shaping those of us for whom Jesus is king. But men and women of God, I have to ask you, is it? Is it? Is it shaping the way you spend, the way you pray, the way you love, the way you vote, the way you hate? Is the sight and the scope of the kingdom of God shaping those of us for whom Jesus is king? Because we, we serve a king of an already and a not yet kingdom, right? Heaven and earth aren't united. It's not there yet. But my question for you is, when it is, is it going to be anything you recognize? Is there going to be anything that you're like, I feel like I've seen this before, mostly on Sundays, and then in my group, and when I was with my believer friends? Or is it going to be something that you go, well, I wasn't expecting that at all? <laughs> Men and women of God, we, we are not, so I'm a theologian, okay, and one of the words that we use is this word called reductionism. And it's when we take something really massive and kind of complicated and we reduce it down to one simple thing. And in so doing, we kind of lie about it. And so here's how I like to think about the gospel. I think of the gospel as an enormous diamond with thousands of facets, right? And those of you who are about to be engaged or have recently become engaged know that the more facets, the more expensive, um, right? So imagine this really beautiful diamond. The gospel of the kingdom is like that. It has many different aspects to it. And when you study one, you see the others well. 
But we wouldn't have much of a diamond if we just had one side, would we? Is it true that God loves you? Absolutely. Is it true that God is, Jesus is our Savior? Absolutely. Is it true that he wants to bless you? Absolutely. But if you only take those three things, then you'll be prepared for a kingdom that God is not bringing. If you, if you, you've got to take this diamond out and stare at it. You've got to take the diamond of the gospel of the kingdom of God and show it to the people that you're discipling. It's not about like, don't do that, just stop, you know, doing these seven sins or whatever. It's about, look at this, because when you see this, do you know what? Sexual immorality just doesn't make any sense anymore. It's just not that great, you know? It's kind of like when, when I got married. I was really into ramen noodles when I was in college, which are like the, you know, cheap little cup of noodles, you know, kind of thing. And I thought they were great. I didn't know why everyone didn't eat them. And then I got married and my wife cooked real food for me. And I was like, I'm never eating that garbage again. And I just, I walked away, Right? <laughs> I walked away, not, not because I didn't like this, but because I tasted something better, right? So when I, when I roll out to you this morning this diamond of the gospel of the kingdom of God, your job and my job is to look at it, to see it, to be shaped by it, so that when, when the jeweler comes, we can recognize his handiwork. Does that make sense? The side and the scope of the kingdom of God must shape those of us for whom Jesus is king. And so, most of you in here, you're already followers of Christ. My simple question to you is, do you need to repent of overloving a piece of God's world and making it the frame? Do you need, do you need to turn away from ripping out a piece of the creation and making it the thing that you live for? Do you love Jesus more than his stuff? Do people know it? Okay? And for those of you who aren't yet followers of Christ, my invitation to you is to come. Look at this most beautiful gospel, most beautiful jewel, and come and meet the one who made it. Come and give your life to the king who died for you. Not who ruled over you, not who showed up with his armies and flattened the world, but who emptied himself, becoming nothing, so that you could be given everything in his kingdom. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you, God, for what you're doing in Every Nation Midrand. This ministry has come to you live from Every Nation Midrand. For other life-changing messages and more information, log on to www.everynationmidrand.org.